Masechet Kitabot Daf Samech Aleph. We're continuing to continuing to analyze the various obligations that a wife has to her husband in a marriage. Uh, seven mentioned in the Mishnah. There are others also, like uh, making the bed and uh, serving uh, wine to her husband that we'll speak about. So now we're discussing nursing. So this was a test that Rav Huna Bar gave to his students. Uh, so let's see what the test was. And in the usual case, uh, the husband will um, want her, his, his wife to nurse. Um, but what if it's uh, not the usual case where the wife, she says, I want to nurse the baby, but the husband says, I don't want you to nurse. I'm going to hire a wet nurse and I don't want you to do it. Uh, maybe because uh, she'll be up all night or she'll be tired or whatever the reason. Shamin uh, la, we listen to her. In other words, the husband does not have a right to refuse for, to, not, to prohibit his wife from nursing. If she wants to nurse, she has a right to do so. Why? Because she's the one that will be suffering. If she's not nursing, that will feel painful to her. And therefore, it's her body, it's her right. But what if he says, I want you to nurse? And she says, no, it's too much work. It's too have to we'll be up all night. Uh, and she does she doesn't want who what about that case so in this in, in this case it depends on what the general custom is in that area in that place in that family uh, if it's a place where people are not accustomed to nurse their own children meaning they're a higher class and so they give it out to a, a wet nurse it's so much easier to hire a wet nurse uh, so in that case we have to listen to her if that's the general practice and she doesn't want to then we have to follow what the general practice is and give her that luxury. Um, but if, let's say, it's in her family, the custom is to nurse. In other words, her family is lower class. They can't afford wet nurses. But in his family, they are wealthier and they generally hire wet, hire wet nurses. So can she demand to be treated um, on the higher level of his family, do we follow his wishes and she has to follow her custom or do we follow her wishes because she wants to follow his custom? Uh, so that was the test. And here's the answer to the test. A principle we've seen already that she rises to his level and she does not descend to his level. If she, if the man is from a higher class, then she has to be treated according to the higher class. Whereas if she is the higher class, then the man has to anyway treat her with the higher class. The what the wife wins out either way. She gets the benefit of either uh, the more luxurious way of life of his family or her family. And what's the source that the man has to treat his wife on a higher level either way? From Vehi Be'ulat Ba'al. This is regarding Avimelech who took Sarai, and then uh, the, he says an angel, he says, why did you take her? She is Be'ulat Baal, she is married. Uh, she is a man's wife. But it's an unusual way to say it. Why say Be'ulat Baal? Ba'aliyatosha Baal, a creative uh, derasha, that you have to treat her with in the height, in the height, the ascension, the aliyah of her husband. So that's how you know that she gets uh, lifted up.
And she does not get placed down if the husband is from a lower background. Or an alternative source. Regarding Chava, says she was the mother of all living beings. She was given to the husband for living with him and for having children with him, but not to suffer pain with him. And so if she's used to a higher uh, standard of living, then he has to provide that for her. Yes, she has to uh, be with him and have children with him, but she doesn't have to lower herself to suffer down on his level. Okay, Hichnisa Lo Shivcha the Mishnah mentioned that if she brings in, if she doesn't have, if she does not have any maidservant, she has to perform these seven tasks. But if she does bring in one maidservant, then she can uh, offload the the requirements of grinding, baking, and washing. Okay, Ha Sha'ara Abda, but we can infer from that that the other other four items the wife still has to do. But why? She should say, I brought you a woman in my place. She has a dowry and she brought in uh, a maidservant. So let the maidservant do all seven uh, items and she can do nothing. Why she still have to do four of them? And the answer is because the husband can say to her, Yes, you could you brought a maidservant and the maidservant will do work for me, the husband, and for herself because she also, the maidservant herself, has needs. But who's going to do your work? In other words, beforehand, if there's nobody, there's no maidservants, there's only two people. So the wife can do all those chores uh, sufficient for two people's needs. But now there are three people and living in the house. So there's more work that needs to be done. So the maid cannot do the work for all three people. She can only do three out of the seven tasks. All right. Shetaim enam ebashelet ve'enam meneket. If menika. If, you, if she brings in two maids, then he, the wife will not need to cook or nurse either. That takes care of five of the items, and there's only two left. But the other two, the wife still has to do. But why does she need to work at all? Why can't the wife say to her husband, listen, I brought yet another maid, and she can do the work for me and for herself and the other maid can do the work for you and for herself and therefore I should not have to do any work at all. Um, in other words, now there's going to be four people living in the house but two maids should be able to uh, fulfill everything for four people. It makes sense, right? If you have only two people in the house, husband and wife, the wife can take care of all these chores for two people, so one for two. So therefore, if you have two maids, they should be able to fulfill everything for four people. And the answer here is Mishum Yeah, but what about the guests and the wayfarers? Oreach sounds like a guest that stays for a while. Parche uh, means he flies away. Someone who comes just for a one a short a short stay. Uh, the point is that once you have a household with uh, with maids, and so these are wealthier people, it's more likely that they're going to have guests. And so, uh, expecting that guests are going to come, uh, the maids are going to have to tend to the guests, and so the wife is still going to have to do a couple of tasks. All right, next uh, step. Shalosh en amasa tamita. If she brings in three, 
then she doesn't need to make the bed and she doesn't need to spin the wool either. Um, she, she doesn't have to do any of the seven tasks mentioned in the Mishnah, but there are other uh, tasks that are not mentioned in the Mishnah, like making the bed and things like that, that she would still have to do. Ha-sha'ara So other things, the you know regular smaller tasks she has to continue to do, even though she has three, three maids. Why? She can say, hey, now I have, I brought yet another, a third maid, and that she can take care of any guests that come. So why should we make the wife do anything at all? How come with just three, why can't she sit like on a throne? Because the husband will say, listen, when we have now even more people, we're going to end up having more guests. Uh, you know, people like inviting guests. It's hard if you don't have any help to have guests, so you won't have guests so often. But if you have three maids, then uh, he's going to want to invest, uh, invite guests often, a lot of guests. And so we're going to need um, the three maids to tend to the guests. And so you're still going to have to do uh, some of the small jobs. Okay. If so, if, then four also. When someone has four maids, they're going to also invite a lot of guests. And so why don't you say that she still has to do the small tasks like making the bed when there's four. The Mishnah says this with four maids. Then she can sit on the throne and do nothing. How come? How come we don't tend to worry about more guests? And the answer is, Four is already a lot of maids and they can assist one each, each other. Even if one or two are tending to the guests, the other ones will fill in and bake the bread and uh, make the beds and all that. So four is sufficient to run an entire household even when there are many guests. Okay. When we say that she bring in, brings in a maidservant when she gets married, part of her dowry, or something that she already owns. Uh, this doesn't mean literally that she actually has to have a maidservant there, a physical person that she brings in, but rather that her dowry is sufficiently large that they could hire someone uh, to take care of uh, those uh, those chores. Uh, and the Braita adds yet another case where she would, uh, which is equivalent, which is that e- uh, even if if she does, the dowry is not so large that it, w- it could afford a maid a maid servant, but she reduces her own needs. She makes her own budget. You know, if it would usually be if she, her budget that she brings in is a thousand dollars a week, and she says, "Listen, I'm gonna not shop and eat very little. I'm only gonna spend three hundred, and so that will allow the other seven hundred for a maid uh, servant." then that is uh, fine. Uh, so that would be equivalent of her bringing in uh, an extra amount to, that would uh, be above her budget. That would be for a maidservant. Okay. Mishnah said if she has four, then she can sit in a nice royal throne and not do any work. Remember this name because we're going to see a whole series of statements by him.
Ravuna here teaches that even if she brings in four maidservants and she's sitting on the throne, nevertheless, there are still some things that a wife must do for her husband because these are not household chores, but rather these are personal, intimate things that a wife does to show her affection to her husband. And that would be include uh, mixing his cup, uh, mixing the wine with water, serving him the wine, and making his bed. Now, this is, we have to clarify, because making the bed was one of the seven, that now she is, once she brings in three maidservants, she is exempt from making the bed. So why is it say here that even with four, she still has to make the bed? So Rishonim explained that perhaps there's two different types of bed preparation. You know, just like today, in the morning we'll make the bed, but then, you know, you go to a fancy hotel, and uh, in the after, late afternoon, they'll turn down the bed. So probably back then also, uh, they used the beds, and then they probably put them away during the day so that they didn't have so many bedrooms, so that they could use use the room and then they bring out the bed again and uh, and make the bed and turn it down so uh, it so the heavy lifting of the preparation of the beds that would be done by maidservants but uh, the, the the preparation of the bed probably in front of the husband as they're uh, uh, before they're going to sleep uh, that would be done that should be done by the wife even if she has four maidservants that's um, uh, an act that shows her affection and also washing his face hands and feet same sage says something else. Any of actions that a woman must do for her husband while she's nida, she has to continue doing those things, except for these acts that are intimate, uh, pouring wine, making the bed, and washing his hands, uh, 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 um, hands, head, face, hands, and feet. Uh, because she's nida, if they're going to do those uh, um, uh, acts of affection, it may lead to them being together, so therefore she has to keep away from that during the time of nida. The problem making the bed is only if he is there, he's present in the room. But if he's not there, then that's not going to lead to anything. That's not an intimate act. So this is a good uh, hint that there are in fact two, uh, uh, at least two different stages and types of making the bed. So even though she cannot pour the wine, mix the wine for, for him in a regular way, these various Amoraim would do it in an unusual way. So Shemuel's wife would change the usual way, and she would pour with her left hand. And so that made a sign that it's, oh, left hand, yeah, this is time of Nida. And that would be a way of separating. Or uh, even if they would mix it in the usual way, uh, a wife would place it on top of a barrel, not on, and not on the table in front of him, or on his pillow. The papa would put it on the bench, and that way, all these were unusual ways, so that they remember, oh, this nida time, and it would not lead to more affection. So this has nothing to do with uh, wives anymore, but rather with how one should treat the waiter. 
but it's, it's by the same sage, uh, and it says here that all foods can be withheld from the waiter. In other words, the waiter is bringing around lots of food, and the waiter is serving the serving the guests. The waiter does not need, you don't have to give the waiter the food. Uh, the waiter can wait till later when he's done, and then he'll eat from those foods, except for meat and wine, because meat and wine are very savory, and uh, the waiter, if he if he sees everybody else eating uh, and drinking wine and he's not, he's going to feel bad. He's going to suffer uh, uh, hunger pangs uh, that will that can be serious, as we're going to see. And so therefore, the waiter, you have, one, you have to allow the waiter to take part uh, in the meat and wine while he's serving it. Amar says not just any uh, meat and wine, but only fatty meat. They liked fatty meat back then. And aged wine, that is uh, was going to make him really salivate. If it's just regular plain old wine, then it's not, then no big deal. attenuates further. It says um, fatty meat is uh, something that is going to be scrumptious and you have to share that with the waiter while he's serving. That's true all year round. But regarding the old wine, that's only in the summertime when the aroma uh, spreads throughout the air more, then he's going to need to drink. But in the winter time, uh, then he, the aroma is not so strong, so he'll be able to wait till after he finishes serving. We see from here that the waiters, these were not like hired uh, um, uh, lowly people, uh, outsiders, but rather the waiters were themselves the sages. The sages' students would serve their masters or sages would serve each other. Maybe they would take turns. Um, and so... Uh, here, Rav Anan Bar Tachlifa, he was waiting on Mor Shemuel, who was of higher stature, and they brought this cooked this dish of mushrooms, and he really liked this dish. Uh, Shemuel, we know, liked mushrooms. It was a uh, dessert for him. And if not, the Rav, Ta- Rav Anan says, if he didn't give me some, I would have been in danger, sakana, because I was really craving it. So thankfully, he followed the salacha and shared it. Amar Rav Asher, Hava Kaim Actually, he went beyond the halacha because halacha just says meat and wine. But this, you know, uh, some people really like particular a particular dish, so that also should be shared with the waiter. So was serving Rav Kahana. So again, here it's a later Rav uh, Asher, uh, sixth generation serving Rav Kahana, who was a teacher. And they brought this uh, turnip dish in vinegar, Bechala. Uh, if I didn't give me, I would have been in danger because the uh, smell was so delicious. Even a fragrant date, uh, which a uh, date is not such a fancy thing, but they would put these, uh, make these dates fragrant and you smell it, and so you should offer it to the waiter. So what they have in common is anything that has an aroma, has a pungent taste, 
that uh, if, it, if, if, if one is serving it, then the guest should allow the waiter to take part at the same time. Abu Bar-Ihi, Uminyamin Bar-Ihi. He had these two uh, sages that were brothers. Uh, one of them would give his waiter every type of food, every dish that the waiter came out, he would say, you know, take some as well. Whereas the other brother only gave him of one food, and he thought that's sufficient, that the waiter should eat something. The brother who gave, uh, shared with the waiter all the foods, Eliyahu would come and speak to him. He was on a, a holy or higher level, whereas the other sage who did just a minimum, gave him one thing to eat, and he was not so pious, and Eliyahu did not come to speak with him. So these two pious people, and some say we know their names, and they were Rav Mari and Rav Pinchas, the two sons of Rav Chista. One would give the waiter before the meal, go and take, you, know, uh, you take first. And the other one would say, oh, everybody eat, all the guests eat first, and then you give the waiter later. Uh, the one who gave the waiter first, Eliyahu came and spoke to him. The one who made the waiter wait, Eliyahu would not come to them. So we learn from these examples, even though it may not be the letter of the law, it's a proper and pious to uh, allow the waiter to eat first from every dish. Okay, now a fun story that Mehmad and Mazutra and these three sages, were uh, sitting in the hallway of King Izgur. This is a Persian king, uh, 399 to 420. And so this must have been a very important meeting that they're meeting with the king of the whole Persian Empire. So he had the king's chief butler, um, he's the waiter, and he's, pass, he's passing around different foods, different dishes. Rav Hashem was looking at Morzutra and saw the Havara Peh's face was all uh, white because he was looking at the food and he really wanted and he couldn't wait. So Rav Hashem did him a favor and he went as the waiter was passing to bring it to the king. The king should eat first. As he was passing, he stuck his finger in and took one of them and put it in Morzutra's mouth so that Morzutra would, would feel revived. The waiter, the chief waiter, said, you spoiled the king's meal because the king is not going to eat from leftovers. The king has to have the first bite. And now you degraded the food and ruined the king's food. And so the king's uh, soldiers are there. What would you do that for? Now they're all angry at him. He might be in trouble. So Rav Asher turned it around on them and said, someone that does this, meaning makes such a terrible dish, you're the one that spoiled the king's food, right? Who is the chef that made this terrible food? What do you mean? What's wrong with it? I saw something funny in it, uh, meaning there's some kind of sada'at, there's something spoiled in the food. And, uh, you know, I was actually saving the king. 
So they went and checked the dish, and they didn't find anything spoiled in it. So uh, now Rav is in trouble. So he put his finger uh, in the food, and he said, Did you check this spot? And then they checked that spot, and sure enough, they found that there was some mold, spoiled uh, spoiled food there. After that, the rabbis recognized that he, he, he did a miracle. And, you know, we don't like to rely on a miracle just for, uh, you know, a, a, a small thing like this. So, you know, why'd you call down a miracle uh, just for this? The rabbis ask Rav Asheh. He says, I actually saw a leprous spread over the food, um, and so I knew it had his defect. In other words, I was not relying on a miracle. I really saw there was something fishy um, about the food that there was something wrong with it. And so he was able to save the day and save themselves so that he wasn't the one that spoiled the food, but rather by taking it first, he actually helped uh, find this uh, spoiled food and help the, prevent the king from uh, eating from it. All right, another fun story. A certain Roman man told, told a woman. We're not talking about any Jews here. It's funny, you don't, don't usually find uh, stories in the Talmud. Usually stories in the Talmud are about rabbis and Jews. This is just some Roman guy. Uh, went to a woman and says, Minas Batli, will, will, will you marry me? She says, no. She rebuffed him. She doesn't want to marry him. So he went and got some pomegranates and he's peeling the pomegranates and eating in front of her, not sharing it with her. Now she is watching this and she has a craving for it and she is salivating and salivating and she's every time she keeps swallowing her saliva. But he will not share it with her until she became ill because she's swallowing so much saliva and is in such distress. She became ill and bloated. Now he says, listen, if I cure you, will you marry me? So she, she was uh, in such distress. She said, all right, fine. Right, anything. Just get me, uh, get me better um, and I'll marry you. So he went and got more pomegranates. And you'd expect it to say, and he actually shared it with her. But no, because he had to undo the damage that was caused. He again peeled them and ate and didn't share. They said, this time, when you salivate, then spit it out. Don't swallow it. Each time, spit it out. you got to get it out of your body. Until some, some like a green leaf came out of her. That was the sickness. And then she was cured. And uh, I, I guess they got married and lived happily ever after. Okay, uh, so that's the end of the story. And now we go to the next item in the Mishnah that she has to spin wool. Uh, we uh, we uh, infer since the Mishnah says wool that yes, he can, the husband uh, can force his wife to spin wool, but not flax. Spinning flax is much more degrading and harder work, as we'll see. The author of this Mishnah must be the Bihuda. A husband cannot force his wife 
to show respect to his father or his son from a previous marriage. She has to show respect to the husband, but not to the other members of his family. And she cannot force him to uh, put straw in front of his animals. But in front of his cattle, yes. So animals meaning horses and donkeys, that, um, uh, number one, could be dangerous. Uh, horses are harder to control. Um, whereas uh, cows and bulls, cattle, I guess, easier. Also, cattle, cows, and bulls are necessary for the household maintenance. They're doing things in the field, so she has to help out with the household. Whereas horses, that's for for him to ride, is not really part of the household. So, for whatever, uh, various reasons. Um, here's the relevant part for us. The husband also cannot force his wife to spin flax um, because flax, while you're spinning it, they would um, have to wet the flax and they would wet it with their mouths. And by doing that a lot, the flax causes bad breath and and can uh, um, um, cause the, the lip to, to swell. And so she doesn't have to put herself through that annoyance. But this is referring to Roman flax. That is the worst, does the worst damage. There are other kinds of flax that aren't so bad. Says that even if she has a hundred maidservants, she still has to do something and she still has to uh, spin the wool because it's not good to be idle. So, says that is the halacha that uh, she, the husband, can force her not to be idle to do something, even though uh, there are other people that can do it. Work itself is good for a person. So now we're going to just clarify. There's two rabbis with similar names, Rav Malkiyu and Rav Malkiya. We just quoted here Rav Malkiyu. And uh, they, uh, they both said that regarding three items, the halakha follows them. Um, the halakha follows them regarding three items, and we want to clarify which they are and who said what, so we don't confuse their names. So this is what it is. She put regarding a skewer that you roasted it, but now there's very little meat on it, and it's already not usable. It would be mukseh. Nevertheless, you can move it uh, with a shinui. You can move it to the corner on Yom Tov to get, to get rid of it. That was one halacha. Shefachot, that's our halacha that we just mentioned, that even if someone has many servants, she still has to do something to keep busy. A gumot is uh, trying to decide when uh, when a minor girl becomes a na'araz, when she has two hairs, even if she has just has two hair follicles, that's sufficient uh, to become a na'ara. All those three uh, were halachot that were, that were said by Rav Malkiyu, whereas the following three were said by Rav Malkiya. Uh, regarding a, a, a four lock, the idolaters would uh, have some kind of hairdo that they had a, a, like a ponytail or, or front, front tail. And so if they went to a Jewish barber, he was not allowed to cut their hair with that forelock. Uh, was not allowed. So they had to, they could cut the hair or the rest of the hair, but the Jewish barber was not allowed, had to leave three hand breaths of hair all around that forelock. 
and so as not to um, help out the idolater, do idolatry. And Efer Makle Ugvina, Efer Makle burnt ashes, uh, one of the a therapy was to put burnt ashes on a wound, but that's also a similar me, uh, way that people would make a tattoo, and so you're not allowed to make a tattoo, so you also can't use burnt ashes on a wound. And Givina, regarding cheese made by Gentiles, not allowed, because sometimes they put lard on the cheese. Those three halachot are said by Rav Malkiya. Okay, that's an opinion of Rabbi Hanina Bede de Rav Ika. However, Rav Papa Amar Matnitinu Matnitad Amalkia. He split up these halachot differently. See, even with all this effort to remember which three and which three, there was actually a an, machloket anyway, which three they said. So Rav Papa says the three that are based on the Mishnah or Baraita, that those are were said by Rav Malkia. Whereas the ones that were said by an Amora Shemateta, those were by Rav Malkiyu. If you want to remember that, Simanech Matnita Malkata. It rhymes. The ones that are based on a Mishnah is Malkia or Malkata, uh, not Malkiyu, which doesn't rhyme. My Benaihu, what what item would be different between the two? Ike Benaihu Shefachot. It's actually this one, this very one, the, regarding the maidservants, according to the Bichanina above, this was said by Malkiyu, but according to the Papa, this is something that's based in the Mishnah, and so he said he would say this halacha was said by Rav Malkiya. Okay, finally, Rabban Shimon ben Gamaliel Omer, Hainu Tanakama. Rashbak says that if uh, someone who vows that his wife is prohibited from doing any work, says, I prohibit my wife from doing any work, they have to divorce and he has to pay her ketuvah because now she won't be able to do anything. Even though he's saying, you know, you are, I, uh, you can't do anything for me. Anything she does around the house is going to benefit him. And so um, uh, then, then she won't be able to do any work and she will be bored and boredom, idleness is very bad. So better, they have to get divorced because better divorce than for her to, to be idle. Uh, now Rashbag is actually saying the same thing as Rabbi Eliezer, who also said that you have to do something. So what's the difference between them? The difference between them is if she has something to do, uh, like if she's playing with small dogs or playing with games, uh, some say it means chess, some say it means some a game like backgammon. As long as she is occupying herself with something, then that's fine. So according to Rabbi Eliezer, this would still be a problem because he used the language of uh, that um, doing idleness leads to zima, leads to licentiousness, promiscuity. And so this is not productive work and therefore it, this would still be a problem. So that's why he said she starts to spin wool, yet she has to do something productive, not just play games all day. Whereas Rashbag just said that idleness leads to shimum, boredom, uh, so it's uh, just not good to sit around and do nothing. But as long as she is doing something, uh, so even if the husband says, I prohibit you from doing any chores around the house, if she has a hobby and she likes to play backgammon all day, then that's fine. They would be able to stay married. All right. Next Mishnah. Madir et ishto mita shmisha mita. Bet shamay omerim. Shetesh shabbatot bet hilel omerim. Shabbat achat. A man makes a vow and says, I, re- I refuse to receive any benefit from the use of the bed. 
I will not have marital relations with uh, relations with you. Uh, they get into a fight, and so he says that. Now, how long is he allowed to do that? The problem here is that a husband has an obligation of onah. He has to be with his wife. It's in the Torah. It's in the Ketubah. So he's not allowed to make this uh, for a long time. He could do it for a day or two. Um, because it depends on how often is the obligation of Ona. That will be the subject of this Mishnah. So Bet Shammai Omrim Sheteh Shabbatot, Bet Hillel Omrim Shabbat Echat. Bet Shammai says the maximum is two weeks. If he says, I am not going to be with you, I, I, I prohibit you for uh, for two weeks or more, then he has to divorce her and pay the Kitubah because he ruined the marriage. He's not fulfilling his obligation of Ona. But if he says less than two weeks, then, okay, they're in a fight. You know, they, uh, they will uh, separate for a while, but that is uh, within the bounds of the obligation of Ona. Betilel, uh, I guess you could say is stringent, or uh, depending on what perspective, stringent or lenient, um, he says only one week, uh, that the husband has to be with his wife every week, and therefore that's the standard. So if he um, vows a prohibition for one week or more, he would have to divorce her and pay the ketubah. Okay, so now we're going to get into um, the subcategories. The on misvav ona is not the same for everybody. Depends on how often a person is uh, around, depending on his job. It also depends on what excuse they have, what else they're doing. So students can go and study Torah without permission of their wives for 30 days, even though they're skipping Ona. We're going to see later on that uh, a student studying Torah has to be with his wife once a week, Friday nights. Uh, generally, um, uh, so that's true. But if he wants, if he if he's going to study Torah and he has to be away for a a, 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 a consistent period, if he's if he's home, then he then he'll come back home. But if he has to go away, he can go away without permission for thirty days. If he has permission from his wife, then he can go away for even longer. Um, regular workers um, can go away to study Torah. We're going to see in a second. Usually regular workers have to be with their wives twice a week. But if they're going to study Torah, then they can go for an entire week, even without their wife's permission. They, the wife can't demand and say, hey, you have to be with me twice a week. He can say, I'm studying Torah. So once a week is enough. Now here is the basic uh, commandment that the Torah says how often a man has to has to fulfill ona depends on your job. People who are men of leisure, they have no job. So they have to be available to their wives every day. Regular day laborers, workers, uh, they have to be uh, with their wives twice a week. Um, you know, they might go for a job uh, one or two days, but they're uh, they're generally around. Ha donkey driver, he's already going to have to go on some trips. He might be away for a couple of days at a time. And so he is required to be with his wife once a week. Camel drivers, camel travel much further than donkeys. So they might be away 
for up to 30 days at a time on a long trip. So they, we cannot require them to be with their wives uh, more often than 30 days, once in 30 days. Hasapanim sailors are going on very long trips. Often they go and travel for months at a time. So therefore they only have to be with their wives once every six months. That is the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer. Okay, Gemara will analyze. Well, how come Bet Shammai says that a standard ona is going to be uh, two weeks. So we learn this from a woman who gives birth to a girl uh, is prohibited to her husband for two weeks. So we see that the Torah itself says that there will be cases where a man and wife cannot be together for two weeks and that is sustainable and that, that's um, uh, that's tolerated. And so therefore in other usual cases also um, we can't demand, if the Torah says they, they are sometimes prohibited for two weeks, we can't demand that the husband be with his wife m- more often than that. Betilel will focus on if a woman has a boy, gives birth to a boy, in that case, her period of to being Tumah and prohibited from her, from her husband is only one week, and that's why he says one week. We question that. doesn't also learn from Bet Shammai. The Torah does, in fact, say that a two-week period for having a girl. So why wouldn't he not agree with that? Uh, you're right. If if he's going to learn the one week from a woman who gives birth for to a boy, then he would have to admit that. Sometimes it's a girl, and it would have to be two weeks. So scratch that. Actually, Bet Hillel is learning from Nida. Nida in the Torah has to wait for seven days, uh, seven days altogether. So therefore, you see the Torah on a regular basis will prohibit a man and, and wife for seven days. So you can't obligate them, obligate him to be uh, available more than once a week. Okay, how come one is comparing uh, the uh, the uh, comparing ona to yoledet to a woman who gives birth, and one is comparing it to a woman who is nida? Betilel says we're going to do things that are common. Uh, nida is very common; it's uh, every month. Uh, where, and uh, take, making a vow um, against marital relations is also common. I don't know; it's not so common now. But back then, uh, people got into a fight, they would make these vows. So we uh, compare these two items that are more common, whereas giving birth to a child, that only happens uh, once every uh, year, two, three years, uh, not so often. Reasons that we should do something that the man caused. He causes the prohibition if he makes a vow. He causes a wife to become pregnant and give birth. So those are more comparable than nida, which just happens naturally. Nothing, the man doesn't do anything to cause or prevent that. So this machloket is between Bet and Bet Shammai is when he gives a, a set time for his vow. I vow that I will not be with you for one week, for two weeks. But if he gives it a, a no a no time period and he just leaves it open ended, I'm not going to be with you. Then he can't. He has to divorce her immediately. Uh, right then, ten and give a ketubah because just at the moment he makes a vow, he already is uh, violating the uh, the stipulations of the ketubah.
Ushmal Amar, Afilu Bistam Namei Amtin. Shema Yimsapetach Lindidra. Shmuel says, no, no. Even if he doesn't give any uh, uh, time period, still he can wait for Betilel, he can wait to divorce her up to seven days. In other words, if he says seven days, then everyone would, will agree that he doesn't have to divorce her right away. He can wait six days. It's only on the seventh day that will trigger the prohibition. Hey, you didn't fulfill your obligation. So then he has to give a ketubah. But uh, if he doesn't say anything, Tanakama would say he can... He has to divorce her right away. Shemuel says, no, no, you can wait because maybe in the meantime he will find some way of dissolving the, uh, the vow. Um, if you can come, from, come to a betin and find some extenuating circumstances, I didn't realize when I made the, the vow that this would be the case. And so we want to give him time uh, to undo the vow and uh, that way they won't need to get the divorced. Uh, we ask about that. This machok between Rav and Shemuel. I said not Tanakama before. I said Rav. I said Tanakama. I meant Rav. Okay, this machok between Rav and Shemuel. What, what they said this machloket here, but actually they already had this conversation, uh, this controversy another time. Why do we need to learn about it twice? So the Mishnah, um, later on, we're going to see this Mishnah soon. Someone who makes a vow that is uh, against that his wife is prohibited from having any benefit from him or his property. I'm not going to take care of you. Any, all my property is prohibited to you. If he makes a time period and he says, I will give no benefit to you for 30 days, well, then they can remain married because he can set up a trustee and the trustee will support her. So that way it's being done indirectly. The trustee will support her. And then after the 30 days, they'll uh, figure out the accounts and they'll pay the trustee back. And so she will still get supported. And so he can continue uh, fulfilling the obligation of his support of Ketubah, even though he made this vow. But if he does it more than 30 days, then he has to, um, then he has to divorce her and give a payment because it's not a sustainable arrangement. Now, that's the Mishnah. This, oh, that we say, you can wait 30 days, that's only if he says, um, a specified amount that this, you know, this vow will ha- will will go on for this amount of time. Okay, so then in the meantime, he can use a trustee. But if he doesn't give any ending time, uh, then he has to give her a kituba immediately uh, because by then, since there's no ending time, there's no end in sight, so he's violating the stipulation of the kituba. Now, he has to divorce now and pay a kituba. That's enough. Says even if he doesn't give it, if it's open-ended, it's a vow that uh, goes on, nevertheless, he can wait 30 days before he has to give her a divorce and pay the ketubah because we want to give a chance for him to figure out a way to undo the vow. So we see that we know, uh, we learned the machok between Rav and Shemuel already regarding another Mishnah. Why do you need to tell us that Rav and Shemuel also disagreed regarding this, in this case, this Mishnah, where he made a vow uh, for one week or two weeks 
um, against marital relations. So we answer, If we only knew about this case where in our Mishnah, he talks about a vow of marital relations, that's why Rav uh, was, um, was stringent in this case because you can't, uh, you, there's no way to get around it. And regarding, if, if it's talking about sustenance, so sustenance he can provide through a trustee, but marital relations, he can't hire a trustee to, to have marital relations in his place. And so that's why we may think that Adav would be stringent only in the case of the vow against marital relations that you have to get divorced right away. But when it comes to, um, when it comes to feeding her, where he's not violating, he can get around it uh, with a trustee. So maybe he would agree with Shmuel that he can wait. So that's why we need that case in, the, in that next Mishnah to teach us that Rav is stringent even in that case. On the other hand, if we only had that case uh, regarding the uh, vow against sustenance where you can hire a trustee, maybe there that's where Shemuel was lenient and said you can wait. Uh, because you can hire a trustee in the, in, in the meantime. But I might think that in this case, where he makes a vow against marital relations, maybe he would be stringent, since you can't hire someone to do that for him, that he would say, yes, you have to divorce right away. So that's why I need this case also to teach me that Shemuel is lenient even in this case. Baruch Adonai Amen v'amen.